This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are deeply involved in understanding Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's investing styles. And we are also diving into the annual meeting here that just happened. Indeed. uh, Last couple of weeks, we're kind of been diving into it. So we're going to continue on with that today. So without other preamble, let's just keep rolling. Just tell people what we're talking about here. Okay, tell them. Okay. (laughs) Um, So this is the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting uh, that happened on Saturday, May 1st. And we talked about it in the last episode. So if you missed that one and you have no idea what we're talking about, go back and listen to that one first, I would recommend. And if you are somebody who has not listened at all or watched at all the the Berkshire meeting before, this was a pretty good one to watch. And it's on Yahoo Finance online, easy to watch. So uh, check it out. So, all right, let's continue. So what what we kind of left off with last time is just that uh, the idea of, of tying your values to what you're putting your money into, mm-hmm. which is uh, a question that came from Becky Quick or somebody in the audience about, hey, you don't buy tobacco. And they could have also said you also don't buy gambling companies, which would be true. Um, but you do you did just buy Chevron. And so what's up with that? Right? Yeah. Like buying Chevron is a problem. It was a great question, I thought, because it really harkened back to a time when they did make statements about not purchasing, not owning certain types of companies that make products they don't want to be involved in. And they were sure. they were public about it at the time with tobacco companies. Um, so it was, I thought, a really nicely phrased question of like, how do you feel about what's going on with um, hydrocarbons these days? It was actually a very long question. <laughs> and like, how do you square that with owning Chevron? And so, and the, the question was a piece of an even larger question that came right after, which yeah. is, what about this ESG proposal made by shareholders that Berkshire be required to produce ESG reports um, so that fund managers could put their money into Berkshire when right now they can't. So and also it's all so that Berkshire can be part of all the ETFs that have defined themselves according As to certain ESG, ESG uh, criteria. Right, which and Berkshire's not in reports. any of those ETFs because nope. they don't fill out these forms. So I think it's a very reasonable question. It is a very, very good question. And it had, I thought the answer was so spectacular. So did I. So I was like start. in the kitchen listening to it and like yeah. freaking out and yes. jumping, like, being like, yes. 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 I was like so, trying to take notes at the same time. It was all very exciting in the kitchen. <laughs> well, let's let's start with the Chevron thing um, because Charlie, Charlie said something really, really biting about it uh, that I thought was quite good. Um, He basically said, oh, he basically said, look at if you, if your daughter 
was going to marry somebody oh. and you didn't know anything about them. All you knew is yeah. one candidate for marriage is an executive at Chevron and the other candidate for marriage is a professor at Wharton. An English professor at Swarthmore is what There we said. go. An English professor at Swarthmore. He says, no which question. One? He goes, no, he goes, which one would you prefer? And I right. literally was like, I do not understand where he is going with this. Because what? I would definitely pick the English professor at what? Swarthmore. And, <laughs> and then I was like, but why? Like, what point is he making? Like, I can't figure it. And oh. then he immediately goes, the guy from Chevron. And I was like, oh, we are different people, me and Charlie. Okay. Well, I think Charlie is basically, yeah, of course you are. Charlie is, you know, this deeply rational person who doesn't oh. like anti-capitalists. And professors are in, enormously leaning toward anti-capitalism and, and teaching their students to be socialists and, 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 oh and social God. justice. No, I'm telling you from Charlie's point of view. He's not a big fan of you social think justice. That's warriors. what he was trying to get at oh, by saying English yes. professor from Swarthmore. Hell yes, part of the giant liberal, super liberal left that is is converting an entire generation, a couple of generations of of people into anti-capitalists who don't understand wealth creation. I don't know, and maybe who have a bias against wealthy people. I think people. you're you're feeling very passionate about this. No, I, I think some it, of your own views. Oh, excuse me, but it's but Charlie clearly, Munger. How hard is this to figure out? He clearly was drawing a very strong dichotomy between the two. Trust me, Daniel. It's not because he doesn't like English. It's not because he doesn't <laughs> like literature. It's because he doesn't like professors. It is true. You're right. He likes English and literature quite and a lot. And think about it. Think but about so it. He's basically anti. Is, the point okay, what's is, the point? That the Chevron person in his mind, I think, would be like a rational business person who is somebody he might like to have as a son-in-law. More than that. It's oh, an ethical that, person. Think? It's an ethical person versus an unethical person. It's a person who deals with reality in an ethical way versus someone who lives on a foreign planet and doesn't deal with reality and is dangerous to our country. That, I, I think, think, is Charlie's position. Is Okay. Well, I, I, neither of us know what Charlie was really trying right. to say with well, that. You so cannot listen to me, your father, leave. but that's all right. Yeah, you cannot listen to me, your daughter, who went to liberal okay. arts schools. But, yeah. <laughs> who went to a liberal arts schools yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Yes. So, point being... Am I a psycho-anti-rationalist person? Not yet. Oh, Not lately. Not lately. So, to the point about Chevron, if you don't mind coming back to it, Feeling a little insulted by this conversation. Not Chevron, lately. Chevron. Nobody wants to know about this. Chevron <laughs> is is a is a moral company in the eyes of Warren and Charlie. It's a moral company, and the fact that the ESG social justice warriors don't like oil is not relevant to a rational person. Because if you get in your automobile. And you would be distressed at the idea that you can't put gas in it because there isn't any, and you can't go down the road, and you can't go on an adventure with your family, and you can't drive your RV, and you can't take your boat out because there's no fuel. Their point being that Chevron is a necessary part of our society, and they shouldn't be treated like a pariah. And I totally agree with them. I think that was that's definitely absurd. their point. Yeah, that was definitely their point. 
completely so, absurd to treat these guys badly and treat them like they're not part of society and you should never invest like they're some sort of apartheid, you know, racist country company. And it's just, I, I'm baffled by that. I love it that these guys stand up for this kind of stuff and say this is crap. And then I think I think like they can. It doesn't really matter what we think. They get to make their decisions with the company that they run, and then we can either join in on that and give them our money uh, to hold as owners, as co-owners, or we can take our money away from them if we disagree about this Chevron thing or about well, I, any I, of the I, other I, parts of companies that look. And I hear you when it buy. comes to it as an investor. Yeah, you're right. We can just choose, but I think it matters a That's, lot what they think because they have a huge public platform. And I love it that these guys are taking a stand against this sort of knee-jerk, bullcrap ESG stuff that's going on out there. Basically, Buffett said, we have two companies that produce hydrocarbons. We have the energy side and we have the railroad side. And both of those companies have exceeded their requirements under the Paris Accords to reduce carbon production, mm -hmm. so much so that we have met our carbon production goal as set set up by the Paris Accords, I think in 2013. Berkshire has met that goal with these two companies already, and it's the goal's not due until 2025. Yeah. And they will meet the goal in 2030 as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and Buffett is saying, so why in the world would I saddle a fabulous CEO who's working for the passion of it, not for the money, down in a company in Texas with some stupid, he didn't say stupid, but I'm saying yeah, stupid. Yeah, no, I mean, he definitely stupid didn't say it the way you're saying it. So you have on a, a lot company, of... Hold on. On a company that does not produce carbon. Why would I have to force this person to do that? He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to force him to do it. He says, I get calls from these financial managers all the time to come and spend time in my office to talk to me about this, and I will not take their call, and I'm not going to take their call because they're a waste of my time. They're not a real shareholder. They come, they go, right? I want our shareholders to make these determinations on ESG, and our shareholders, the ones who actually own the stock as a human being, are 97% in favor of what we do and 97% against this ESG uh, proposal. So there you go. And I, I think it definitely matters what these guys have to say, because somebody's got to stand up against this stuff. This this level of political correctness gets out of control. So that's my point. You you want to speak on this or shall we move on? <laughs> Am I allowed to talk now? Yeah? Of course. I He, I, I feel very uncomfortable characterizing him and what he said the way you just put it because you have so much vitriol around it and that is not the way that Buffett talked about it at all and I think it's it's important to me to say that on here because I think it's important I'm sorry I'm gonna break in way. right here I'm gonna break in right here because sure. you're so wrong I'm gonna quote you quote they want us to fill out reports just a bunch of reports it's asinine you're quoting me? I'm quoting Buffett. Oh. Yeah. It's no. asinine. Yes. How, 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 I mean, how am I mischaracterizing him if he's saying these reports are asinine? How is that mischaracterizing him? It's, yeah, no, that part he is very anti the reports. 
But I don't think that he thinks that these people who are trying to create ESG ETFs or trying to follow ESG rules in their investing are complete idiots who are trying to create problems in companies. What they're trying to get at is companies doing better, companies having diversity, companies making conscious environmental choices. They're trying to get at companies doing better. And they're doing it the wrong way. They're doing it in a way that works over many companies in a very uh, standardized way. According to you. And what... No, it's a standardized way. It's a way that what, multiple what makes you companies think this works. What makes can, you think this is something that's actually useful for a bunch of companies to fill out a bunch of BS reports? Why? I don't is that think that useful? they're BS reports. These are the T. These are the, what do they call those in office like space? TPS the TPS reports? reports. That's exactly what these are for most companies. Look, I don't use them. I don't look at them. <laughs> I also don't think that it's a bad TPS thing report. that we uh. have. A system here for companies to standardize their reporting on this stuff. Buffett's asking these people to do a little work. It's gone from nobody talking about it 10 years ago, except basically you and me. That's right. And now it is mainstream. And if a company isn't following it, they have to explain why, which is what he did on Saturday. Uh, And I think that that is a really good overall change. Now, at the same time, and I've said this like many times about Berkshire, I think it's fantastic that they don't fill out those reports. It's the right decision for Berkshire. Berkshire doesn't want the kind of shareholders who are in and out in these ESG ETFs. They don't want the kind of money managers that are looking only for check the box ESG companies. So it's the right decision for Berkshire. And I think that the companies that do fill out the ESG reports because they do want to be in those ETFs and in those funds and having people look at them in a certain way, that's the right decision for those companies. And I'm not going to say that it's automatically asinine or ridiculous. And I don't think Buffett said that in any way on Saturday. He said that it's It's not right. No, for Berkshire. He didn't say for Berkshire. He, said he says for it's Berkshire. asinine. No. Uh-huh. I don't think that he thinks it's stupid for other companies. Okay. I think and I y- think y- overall, just uh-huh. from like reading about him, my general opinion is that he would think that this is overall a good shift for companies to be having to disclose stuff. Man, now, here, here I'm quoting Buffett, and he seems completely to say the opposite of what you just said. And he has never said anything like what you've just said, which is in favor of TPS reports uh, for ESG. So I think you're just putting yourself on this and you're doing the very thing you're accusing me of doing. So I'm just putting myself on on this. Yeah, this is just your view through your your glasses. Through my glasses. This is how you feel. Just as everything I say on this podcast is is doing the same thing through my glasses. You didn't listen to what I said. Same for you. Nah, no, nah, I'm quoting Buffett. I got that going for me. You quote, you quote Buffett to me about how he thinks these ESG reports are fine, and I'll be, I'll listen a lot more carefully. You know, actually, that'd be something to look up. I'll, I'll try to look that yeah, up. I'm curious up. if anybody's asked him what he thinks about it for other companies. Go look it up because they ask him every year about Berkshire, 
and he answers the same every year. He has a hundred companies, the and ninety, or let's say roughly, hundred companies, and ninety-eight of them he thinks the report's stupid for. So for what do we think? Berkshire companies. For one hundred companies across Owned a major by bunch Berkshire. of industries. Yeah. Oh God, I so, give up. All right, moving on. I'd be curious. Modern modern monetary know, theory. Let me just say we know that Apple fills them out. So does he think that that's stupid? I don't know. Modern monetary theory. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I imagine he thinks it's stupid. <laughs> okay, modern monetary theory. <laughs> and this is the next thing he goes to. Modern monetary theory, which says brilliantly that if you're the reserve currency of the world, you can print as much as you want without any downside. Mm. And the basic justification of that is if you're diluting your currency, everybody has to dilute it with you or they can't sell you anything. So if you're a major uh, buyer of stuff from around the world and you're the reserve currency, you get special dispensation, which turns out so far to be true, which is why modern monetary theory is gaining some credence. And of course, Buffett is basically going, <laughs> those economists who believe in this are more confident they, than they really ought to be. Um, he says this extreme comment, you know, conduct that they're doing is, I mean, it's amazing, but it's still working. Um, but it will end in disaster. If they keep doing it, it will end in disaster. Another so. another disaster word, right? We talked about that last time, yep. where Charlie disaster word. was warning that disaster will come at some point. Exactly. For the gamblers. For the gamblers. And then Buffett put up a slide quoting John Maynard Keyes from General Theory, um, which he wrote in 1936. And what it says is, should I, should I just read it? I think I'll just read it. Yeah, read it. All right. Speculators may do no harm as bubbles on a steady stream of enterprise. All right, so let me unpack that for a second. He's basically saying that if you've got good, wonderful businesses that are really actually producing wealth, then speculators can come in and they're just bubbles on the surface of these great, these great companies. Then he says, but the position is serious when enterprise becomes a bubble on a whirlpool of speculation. In other words, if it flips itself and the entire market is being driven to speculative companies, mm -hmm. and then enterprise is just trying to get along and get some of the money in the middle of that, then things are serious. When capital development of a country becomes a byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. Mm -hmm. And basically, Buffett just goes, the stock market is now a casino. Millions of people are day trading, they're selling puts, they're selling calls. The greatest increase in the number of gamblers, you know, it's this has become better than the state lottery. Um, you know, it just the, the and, impulse to and gamble I is think strong. Beware of the enterprises that are being created during yeah. this time of bubble. They that are, are being created are, and funded and priced. Yeah. And priced. Yeah. Right. And eventually the tide will go out and we're going to see who's swimming naked. And it's going to be unbelievable. I, I, I look through a lot of stuff a lot of the time during the week. And I'm telling you, man, the number of companies that are public without profit is extraordinary. And hmm. in other words, people are speculating that this company is someday going to become a really profitable, successful company. Yeah. And there, I would ballpark, I don't know, it looks like 30 or 40% of the Russell 2,000 small cap companies are completely venture capital. They yeah. are 
not making a nickel. They're losing money hand over fist. And they're out there being speculated on. I mean, look at GameStop. My God, man. This, is, this company doesn't make any money. It loses money. I mean, and it, it's been blown up to this enormous value on the back of, of a lot of, of speculators who just like it and have gotten together as a group to, to speculate about it. And so that's just the most, you know, a visible iceberg in the whole thing. Ah, man, and companies like Robinhood that encourage this kind of stuff. Is, and these guys are very down on it. Very, very, very down on that. So I, I don't, you know, which is interesting to me, particularly because Buffett has a kind of speculative quality in his investing that goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning. What does that mean? It means that he does some gambles. He does highly probable gambles and has done since 1955. These gambles are on merger acquisition candidates where oh, yeah, they yeah. think there's... Oh, yeah, have been talking about that lately. Yeah, there's a high probability that the deal will go through and the, the amount of money you can win if you win versus what you lose if you lose creates a really, really good gamble. Yeah. And he's been doing those forever. And then now, of course, it's the market's gotten so well, efficient. You can't they did those. say that they, uh, it was a very quick little thing. He said, we own some companies we don't really understand. Or something like that. <laughs> or like, we don't know too right. much about something like that. Right. And uh, and immediately Becky was like, what do you own? What are you saying? <laughs> what are you saying? Ah! And he right. was immediately like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to talk about that at all. Right. So you know that. And, and then he said that um, that they think that it's to hold these companies are better than holding treasury bills, but not trustworthy and not confident enough to really put a lot of money into it. So it's right. kind of that like middle ground. And, and I was just really enjoying thinking about what are he and Charlie buying for fun in like small amounts? It, it, it literally right is it's just that kind of for fun oh, stuff. Totally. Because they, of a they're like, basically, maybe this will turn out or maybe it won't. It'll be interesting. It's totally that vibe. Well, again, for those of you who are looking at trying to buy companies, essentially trying, you know, Buffett's trying to get 80 billion into the market. And he said, flat, plain out, we won't get a chance to do it under these conditions. Yeah. But. Conditions change, and I will say this quote, very, very, very rapidly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, I mean, you put money into it, you know, basically at your own risk at, at this point. If, if you don't see one of the best investors in the world um, thinking this is a great market to invest in, that the bars are not six inches, the bars are six feet, um, you be really careful out there, you guys, for sure. Be really careful. And that's um, why he says right. buy the whole index and just Buy chill. the index, I guess. But jeez, yeah. I mean, how, how would you like to take a 60, 70% hit on that? Yeah, I not, mean, I not wouldn't. excited about 60 to 70% on anything. Is anyone excited no. about that? No. No. So that's why I'm leaning toward cash, sports fans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last thing. Last thing I want to talk thing. about with this whole deal is that they were... Uh, talking about share buybacks in a way I'd never thought before, which I thought was fascinating. Hmm. All right. So essentially, share buybacks distribute cash from those who want to own the business to those who want out. That, that's what happens. And the cash that gets distributed is owned by- This is how they by, described it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. 
this is the cash that's owned by all the shareholders of the company. That's uh, ideally, right? If you're doing it right, you're not borrowing money to buy back stock, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so this is excess capital. This is free cash. You have your choice what to do with it. And whoever's allocating the capital, the CEO is determining, I don't have a place to put this that would get a, a good return. And so I have a choice. I can either pay a dividend out to all the shareholders or I could buy back stock. Um, that choice starts with understanding what the value of the company is relative to its price. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So it becomes an immoral decision to buy back stock. If the price of the company is higher than its value, then it's immoral to buy back that stock. You're squandering the, the, the very money that's owned by someone else. And these people running these companies do it all the time. In order to drive up the stock price or to hold up the stock price, they buy back stock at a, especially in this market, a price that cannot be defended as beneficial to shareholders. It just benefits people who have options. And I guess it benefits shareholders if the price doesn't go down, if you're not a long-term shareholder. So what, what did you, I feel like I've heard them say that stuff basically every year. What was the, what was the part that struck you as different? Well, here's the part that, that I really never thought about, and that is if you pay out a dividend and you've got four people who own this business, let's say, and you pay out a dividend when three of them don't want you to because they don't want to take in this money. They don't want to take the money out of the company, per se, right, without benefiting themselves other than yeah. they, they got to go put the money somewhere. Yeah, they, I mean, I, I've been through that. Right? You just Three of the four of us don't want it. wish the company would rather just keep it and do something good with it. Right. So you've got this one person who wants the cash, and you've got three people who want the company to essentially give them larger ownership. It's a more moral decision. It's a fairer decision to simply take that capital instead of paying out a dividend, which is intaxable, and a lot of the shareholders don't want it, you simply buy back the stock if the stock is on sale. And then the people who want the cash are exiting the company, and the people who don't are getting a larger position in the company. Is that it's deeply moral for shareholders uh, who get out at a price that's great for the owners. That's a deeply moral decision. I, I just never thought about like the dividend being you know, unfair to a, a, a significant group of, of shareholders, probably the majority. Yeah, I think it's a really nice point to call out. I agree. Uh, now, it's impossible, of course, for a company to make decisions based on, well, I shouldn't say it's impossible. They do it all the time. A company that I want to be part of, I hope, is not making decisions based on what its shareholders want for their own personal payouts. I want a company that's making great decisions about the efforts and products and services of that company and let me handle my stuff. But I get what they're saying that if you as a company can't think of anything better to do with that money as in like acquisitions, R and D, you know, getting to employ like growing, whatever. All right, I wanna then, I wanna dive into that what you just said. Which part? 
the part where if your Apple computer and you're very happy to sit on $200 billion and just keep sitting on it, which is where Tim Cook was a few years ago, and your shareholders are screaming at you to buy back stock or pay dividends or both. Mm-hmm. You're saying you want Tim Cook to ignore them. Oh, I definitely want that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, he didn't. So? I mean, well, I mean, shoot. Why would you think that, okay, let me put it like this. Cook didn't have anything to do with the money. He didn't know what he was going to do with it. He just wanted to have it, right? And the owners of the company are saying, that's just wrong. Your, your, your return on equity is going down. Your return on invested capital is going down. You know, why wouldn't you pay some of this out in terms of buying back stock and giving us more ownership of the company? Why, why just sit on that for just some rainy day down the road? And you don't think that they should listen at all. I'm, I'm not t- saying I'm you're telling, wrong, by the I know, way. I know you're not. Um, what For me, I want management exactly like Tim Cook in that situation, who's saying, I'm the one running this company. I'm making the decisions for Apple for the next 30 years to be that trillion, bazillion, whatever company that's still on the list of the biggest companies in the world in 30 years. And this is the decision that I think we need to make. And shareholders can go stuff it. Like, feel free to sell your stock. We have the choice. So I don't have a problem with that. And I will, if I disagree with the choice a given CEO is making, I will absolutely sell and move on and go find a company that makes choices I do agree with. So, so I don't are have you, a problem you really, with that at all. Are you black and white at this? Right, so let's, let's take this up one step. Now you own all the stock. Okay. You're not just some amorphous mass of human beings out there. Now you're you own all the stock. You're Warren Buffett. Now, do you still feel the same way? Your CEO has complete uh, um, uh, what? Complete so authority to ignore you of having control over the board, basically. As the yeah, like I can fire the CEO now. Yeah, so I can fire the CEO. So I'm a you know, it's my own personal company, basically. In that situation, then I'm going to have a lot more. I'm going to have to make a decision in in a lot of ways, like I'm running the company at that point, because I can pick and choose who's going to run it. So um, in that situation, I would, I mean, already in the first situation, I have a view on what that person should do. And if they do something different than I think, then I sell the sock. And if I have a view in this situation where I'm the hundred percent shareholder and the person I've chosen to run the company does something I think is dumb, then yeah, I'm in that situation, rather than selling my shares, I'd probably fire that person and get a new one. Okay. So, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not totally in dis- in disagreeing here. I, I think that effectively our decision to exit the company when some CEO is misbehaving in our view is, is reasonable. But I also think that's reasonable if we're a significant shareholder to step in there. We might not own the whole thing, but we can certainly make the CEO uncomfortable if we think they're doing a dumb thing yeah. in a great company like yeah. Apple, right? Absolutely. Like Steve Jobs didn't want to take Apple to, to China and, and Tim Cook is the guy that convinced him to do it. And, you know, I wish that they didn't. Yeah, they're kind of pulling back from that now. And Steve Jobs is also the one who never wanted to pay a dividend on Apple stock 
ever. He wanted as much money in the bank account as he could possibly have because he was going to do amazing things. And he didn't know what those amazing things were and how much money it would cost to do that. Right. So I think Tim Cook for a long time was trying to follow the Steve Jobs plan and he's not Steve Jobs. He's he's just done an, he's done an amazing job in his own right. Like, let's be real about that. He's a really great operations guy. Totally. World-class. So he's made a different choice, but it was after a lot of yelling from shareholders and I get both sides. So I'm not, I'm not taking a position on that one, but I remember when he was fighting the good fight to not pay the dividends. I got it. You know, I got where he was coming from. He was going, guys, I think we can do something better with this money than you can do with this money. And if you disagree with me, sell. Don't be an owner with me. And I, that's the kind of management I want in companies I choose. Okay, fair enough. Now, one, one more last thing and then we're the last one thing. One more last thing. Well, one more last thing that I think is really worth discussing. Uh-oh, hold on. Son of a gun. Um, I thought I had all that turned off. So... The last, last thing is we have uh, an idea that we started with that there's 20 large companies and they're going to change over time. Which Buffett started talking about at the beginning of the At the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this, an- this answer came up through a discussion about precision cast parts, which Buffett said he paid too much for. All mm-hmm. right. Um, one of these guys, I don't remember if it was Buffett or Munger, said, yeah, we, we make mistakes. You know, we get things right. We also make mistakes. But- when we make mistakes, they tend to get smaller in our portfolio over time. Mm-hmm. And the really good ones just tend to get bigger. Yeah. And he said, I want to remind you guys that we started off with three businesses in Berkshire. We had textiles, we had a stamp business, and we had a department store. Mm-hmm. And they all failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all failed. He says, yeah, we know coal is phasing out. We know oil is phasing out. We know all these things. Um so the number one risk factor when you're looking at basically investing or management of a company is who's running it. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're going to be managing your own money, which is what I extrapolated from this, is that you you have to understand that all businesses are going through a cycle. They may be going up toward their peak and then starting down. Their, their down might last 100 years or it might last 100 days. You know, You have to understand the business and you have to know where it is in the cycle and you have to be understanding that someday it will fail, almost certainly, right? There's very few businesses that don't. So I thought that was a really good way to kind of end the whole discussion about what they're trying to teach us at the at the Berkshire meeting is that I think if you're going to be an investor, you need to understand that no business that you own is something you can just sit there and leave it unattended. You have to be aware of what's going on in the industry. And Ajit Jain had the most wonderful thing to say about it when they asked him about what does he read? And what he said all day long is he just reads about the competition and who's going to disrupt his companies. And I think that's a great lesson for us. That's exactly what you should be doing on anything you own. Um, And I'm reminding you because I'm reminding me, it's, it's something that's so easy to not do. Once you make the investment and you feel you've got a wonderful business and you bought it at a great price, now it's just a matter of leaving it there forever you can't. The world's moving too fast for that. You have to be on top of things and you have to understand what's going on with the competition, which is why you have a choice between investing in a very small number of companies, which you can do that with, just in the amount of time you have as a human, or you don't try to do this. You just buy the index and and hope for the best. 
So with that, I'll leave it with you, Danielle. You have any last words Sounds here? Good. I, I I mean that point that he made, which was to that that a that a person that a human can really screw up a company if they get left there for a certain number of years. Oh yeah. He said, "Oh, like you know, they can be there for a second, but if the board doesn't remove them, then you have a real problem." Yep. And that is true. So I'll leave. Okay. It there. One one last thing. I oh my to tell gosh. You. Okay. One last thing about Elon Musk. Basically, <laughs> Musk Musk criticized them on this deal they're trying to do with Texas, where Berkshire will provide Texas by November 2023 a guaranteed seven days of energy across the entire state. So Berkshire will build the transmission lines and they'll put the energy into Texas if they need it in an emergency. And Musk came out after he heard about it and said they should just do battery storage. And Buffett goes, Buffett basically goes, yeah, we, you know, we're offering them a $4 billion guarantee that we'll have it by 2023 if they get started on it now. And that's seven days of energy across the whole state. And Musk is offering four hours. Okay. And then Charlie's and then somebody said, I think Becky asked him, would you insure Musk's rockets to Mars? Mm -hmm. And Charlie goes, he goes, well, it had to depend on whether Musk is on it or not. <laughs> great. Well, first, first, the G to G send Elon to Mars. <laughs> oh, my God. Crack yeah. me up. First, okay. Ajit Jane goes, no. Yeah, no. We and, wouldn't then, and then Buffett goes, well, it would depend on what the premium would be. <laughs> right, right. And then Charlie goes, yeah, it would depend on whether Musk is on the rocket. All right. We'll leave you with that. These guys are fun to listen to. Go listen to the whole thing. You'll learn a lot more than we talked about here, I'm sure. Absolutely. And uh, get back to us on anything else you want to talk about with the Berkshire meeting, because I'm sure you'll pick up stuff we didn't talk about, and we'd be happy to. So send in your questions. And that's it from us. Time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.